This is Bruce. This is John. This is Trav. And this is Eric. Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast, your podcast of reaching in your pocket and pulling out the most awesome game you've ever seen for your players. We're here this week to talk about super wealthy characters and how they change the game. Now, we have a guest host this week. Trav, you've met this guy before, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, we bumped into each other a few times. Folks, our guest tonight, he is one of my playtesters for Bureau 13D20. He invented the Cabal of Families that's in Bureau 13D20. He role-played one of those family members for the playtest session. He's also in my Fringeworthy D20 game, as well as my co-host on my other show. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce Eric, the enabler, Spar. Hello. Thank you. (laughs) It's all about having fun, and it's all about having fun with friends. Well, Eric, tonight we're talking about super wealthy characters. Since you did a whole lot of stuff about some very, very wealthy families, that you're probably a real good expert on talking about this. We want to bring in the uh, one and only comment we got. Oh, please. That sounds like fun. Ah, yes, yes, yes. From Chuck Enzenauer. He says, it depends on what time frame the campaign is set in. Are we talking the year of discovery or 20 years in the future? How long has it been in the campaign? And while being wealthy has certain advantages, it doesn't control the process of the supply chain. Now, this is in terms of fringeworthy. So before uh, Cherisky and Richardson stations are, are you know come online, the only supplies reaching Hatsumi are coming on Unita flights. A character's personal wealth is of little use. A character's personal fortune can also be an incredibly useful source of adventure hooks. Grift and bribery scenes uh, can, be, can be played out. Wealthy characters may become targets for blackmailers and other unscrupulous NPCs. So he's paralleling some thoughts we had. And then there's other challenges you can toss at your players. And it gives an example where players decide that they're going to uh, gain control of an ice cream manufacturer to s- export ice cream treats to Met Demka, which is the, and I forgot their names. I believe the Demixi world. The Demixi home world. And the Yakuza decides to get into this by marketing an ice cream treat that looks like a baby spider. Now, unfortunately, I, as we said in our previous podcast, that probably may not actually be an issue. But still, in this case, now there's a problem because, oh, now we're eating, they're selling us baby spider treats. You know, and oh, what are we going to do? And, and, and how the characters deal with this, especially the rich character who's been funding this, this operation. How do you deal with this? Do they cave? Do they allow their investment to become worthless? Or do they uh, go into a trade war to kill their competition? This is all taking place on two different worlds. Earth Prime, and uh, Matt Demka. The first component was the one that I latched on to because, to me, it asked several questions at once that can be answered all at the same time. Wealth and whether or not you also want to throw in certain issues of social status, because when I like to play obscene wealth, I play the, the mindset of like a petty aristocrat. Now, if some games actually have rules for being part of the aristocracy, now, whether or not the aristocracy exists as a functional entity anymore or not can be entirely secondary to your campaign. If you're old money enough, you could be part of the old aristocracy. Or maybe you have a hunk of paper on a wall someplace that actually says that you're part of Family X that hasn't really had anything to do or say for the last 200 years. But... Being rich, being an aristocrat, having, you know, again, it it can all get down to issues of if the game master is game for it, then the time frame has less of an importance for how, how well you can play a rich or a poor person and more on the campaign setting. If you're in a D&D world and you want to play an aristocrat, there's a lot of things you can and cannot do. If you're in the modern day and you're trying to play a rich aristocrat, most people aren't even going to realize that you're playing a rich aristocrat. They're just going to think you're playing a rich stuck-up guy, which is 
Well, I found that to be great fun. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Although the campaign timeline is important and the game itself can be very important, some games have very strict rules on wealth and you can't get above, hi, I'm rich, but it has no in-game impact. Or, hi, I'm rich, and it just means I have nice stuff, but very, again, very little in-game effect. And others, it's, hi, I'm rich, and it's almost impossible for the GM to throw something at me that I can't be ready for with a phone call. But a lot of times, wealth and the attitudes that go along with it are just as much homework for the player as it is for the GM. And as long as everyone there is having fun, and as long as everyone's able to feel like they're able to do something with that character in the way that they had originally envisioned that character, then isn't that why we get around the table uh, on those nights in the first place? You bring up the final thing that I think we should talk about, and that is how we do this inside of various game systems. In a number of game systems, being wealthy is impossible to achieve. Just by following normal character creation, you would not be able to play a super wealthy person. As an example of the D20 Modern system, if we assume somebody who's really wealthy is to the point where, oh, I can buy anything I want. Well, Learjet has a wealth rating of 40. Yet we say people who come into IDET and they gain that $100,000 is equivalent to around 15 to 18 in a wealth rating. So they're nowhere near that kind of wealth. I, I see what you're saying there, but... Die 20 Modern, the wealth system, actually does lend itself to being obscenely rich if the character's initial concept is to be obscenely rich. If they wish to be good at anything else, not so much. But if their sole job is to be rich, and Rob saw me do it, I proved that by level 5 I could have a 40 wealth. Okay, so how do you do it? Max out your skill ranks, you take all the pertinent feats, and in Die 20 Modern they have a little feat called Windfall. Not only does it give you a little bit of extra money, but it also gives you a bonus to your profession score. Yeah, plus three to wealth score and plus one to profession score. And if you're playing either Bureau 13 or uh, Fringeworthy, you're technically belonging to an organization that for the most part is going to cover your minor day-to-day expenses. So it's not like you're going to be breaking out your checkbook that often. And once you've exceeded a certain wealth limit... Even if you're a complete stickler for the D20 rules, as long as you're smart about how you do it, you're only taking a one-point penalty because you're not buying anything more than your wealth score when the wealth isn't where you want it to be at. Bureau 13 D20. Once you gain the Bureau Agent Beat, you no longer have to worry about wealth loss. Remember, the Bureau can make money. And then I was going to go on to... Fringeworthy is the one that you're still... However, with with Fringeworthy... You then have the, hi, I found these great books about PL7 in the early campaign. Congratulations, while half the science staff at Hatsumi is busy falling over their tongues, you've got some money. Hi, we stopped an epidemic on the Viking homeworld. Congratulations, that's a wealth bonus. Yeah, because there is the chart that's saying, depending on what you do, you get wealth bonuses above and beyond, you know, profession role type stuff. But Trav, those wealth bonuses are for one use only. They're not designed to be increase your level of wealth across the board permanently. But I'm saying is that if you run across that once in a, the one time you're allowed to use it, when you get it, that's a significant little bonus there. Oh yeah. Because most of them are more than two or three points. If you're doing the spectacular thing, say you're twelfth level. Say your game's really been bringing the awesome. Congratulations, you've beaten a major threat from the French pirates or the Coptics or whoever. You may have saved an entire planet, or at least a node, depending on your perspective. That money is not your sole mode of income, but those can really go toward helping to defray the costs of congratulations if I'm not allowed to buy myself nice things because 
I'm going to have to order the gun through the, the requisitions department, well, darn it, I'm going to, at a plus 24 to the base wealth score of the item, once my wealth score is high enough, I'm going to buy a thousand of them, and I'm going to make sure that Hatsumi base is equipped with the best gear. If my wealth score is high enough, that cost me one point. Or maybe it costs me a die six plus one. And yes, you felt a small inconvenience, but now when you're going out on the fringe paths, you've got that thing that you really, really wanted. And GM can't say you can't do it because it's not there. No, you bought it for the whole base. You made sure there was more than enough. If you dedicate yourself, you can become obscenely wealthy. There's a new supplement came out called Wealth, the Root of All Evil. Yeah, I saw the link, yeah. The fellow who wrote this addresses that point of temporary wealth bonuses, saying, okay, you get a bag of money. He says, best thing to do with a bag of money is make it money. Don't make it a wealth bonus. You, if you got $100,000, it's $100,000, and there are tables in D20 Modern to give you approximate prices for goods. And you just spend the $100,000. Don't worry about trying to turn into a wealth score. Because in D20, wealth does not represent money. It represents buying power, but also it represents your credit score, represents your investments, it represents capital you have tied up that you can't get at easily. It's not just money, it's, it's it's a lot of things. And also represents your whether or not you have the ability to get a loan or to put <laughs> things uh, where you can make payments on it. For those people who don't know me, I have issues with the Diet 20 Modern Wealth System <laughs> because it is so very, very easy to abuse. It does lend itself to a wide variety of gaming situations, so I'm not going to completely malign it. But it's a wealth system that if the <laughs> GM is willing to keep an eye on what you're doing, then the wealth system isn't, isn't that bad of a situation. If, however, you've got the character out there who says, I'm going to be obscenely wealthy, well, there's little more you can do about it than to shake their hand and say congratulations. That author is Robert Engel. Thank you, Robert Engel. I am on Drive to RPG's page itself, and yeah, Robert Engel. Yeah. Now, the thing is, I'm, I'm experienced with several systems. Like uh, the fate system, which is used in two different systems that deal with wealth. One is uh, Spirit of the Century, and the other is Diaspora. Uh, in Spirit of the Century, you can be wealthy but have really no in-game effects. You're just wealthy. But you can get complications to your wealth that can affect your character. There, it's just treated as a character. You're wealthy. You can buy whatever you want to. Don't worry about it. Only worry about when it has an in-game effect. So in this case you have a complication which you have to get rid of, otherwise it can cause further problems in other areas. In Diaspora, you actually have a stat called Assets, which is a bit like the Wealth Score in D20. Only it's strange, and, and, and I've had conversations with the designers about this, and it's because you can change it at will. You can go from dirt poor, which is having no assets whatsoever, to obscenely wealthy in about five games, just by changing your stats, your, your various traits. An uh, asset of five is, can buy spaceships without thinking about it. The thing is, it's not linear. It's, a lo it's almost logarithmic, is the values at each, each level. There's only five levels. And you can go from dirt poor to being able to afford $100 million spaceships. It's kind of hard to figure out what does it mean to, have a, to get a bonus to your assets in that one. What does it mean? And that's the problem with the D20 wealth. Bill Gates, he gets a million dollars. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'll give it to charity. I get a million dollars. Thank you. <laughs> you will find me dead seven days later with a big smile on my face you cannot remove with plastic surgery. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But if you want to start a character in, let's say, the D20 modern system who is wealthy, the only way I see of being able to do it, other than just simply hand-waving it around, is to do one of two things. Either look at it philosophically and say, well, this is the equivalent of, let's say, being a mage or being the psionicist. This is his superpower, and that's what he does because there is no real equivalency between what you can do by being a mage versus somebody who could shoot a gun as far as the possible transformative aspect of those particular powers. That's one way I see of doing it is just simply say, okay, that's your superpower. You're, you're that, so you can't be the mage. You can't be the psionicist because this is your superpower. This is your special ability. Is you are wealthy. 
The other thing is to say it takes you 10 windfalls in order to get you up to that level that is considered to be truly wealthy, then we have to give the same number of feats to everybody else. And so even though you're first level characters, the GM says, okay, everyone else is just go and load up because this guy over here, he's got this big thing going for him, but because we want you to be parody, you all get 10 other things that you can make yourself awesome at first level also. 10 windfalls is not the same as getting 10 of these other things. 10 windfalls just makes you wealthy. It doesn't make you awesome. We just had a whole hour-long discussion, John, about how being wealthy is awesome. It is awesome, but in game mechanics, I can get a whole lot of combat-related stuff. 10 feet, thank you. Woof. I can buy you. That's great. I can beat you up. I can hire someone to beat you up who's better than you. I was just going to say, hire <laughs> Hey, no, 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 We've already been there in, in the game system. I can take anyone on this planet. Kef, kiddo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bruce brought up a good point about, oh, your superpower is, you're not the mage, you're not the scientist, you're the wealthy person of the team. You're the maybe the benefactor, or at least... The guy who has the best stuff, yeah. Yes. Whether you're a mage, a scientist, or you are the wealthy character on the team, you're still going to take the feats to help you augment yourself in that capacity. For mage, you're going to take metamagic feats, extend, heighten, those feats. For the scientists, they have the similar feats, but for powers. In the matter of the wealthy character, you're not only going to take windfall, you're going to take renown, because if you're wealthy, depending on the, the outlook of the character, you're also going to take the various feats to give you the skills that can open the doors for you, like trustworthy, maybe deceptive, persuasive and negotiator if you're doing a D&D game. You're still going to take feats to get you down, to help you down that path easier in the regard of being wealthy. And you can double on to the profession skill. And there's another feat that I found out. It is in the Modern Player's Companion from the Game Mechanics. Mm -hmm. It is called, and don't even start drooling when I I tell you this. You've already told me and I've already seen it. Oh, I've told you about Financial Wizard? Yes. Yes, it it is called Financial Wizard. If you are familiar with the D20 mechanic for rolling wealth, every level gain, you roll your profession skill against your wealth score. If you make the roll, that's one point. For every five you make that roll, that's another point. Plus, for every five or fraction of five ranks you have in profession, that's another point. Financial Wizard allows you, for every five you make the roll by, you gain two wealth, not one. Well, the awesome of that is sinking in, and that is pretty awesome, especially once you get your numbers up. Yeah. What I like to think of is that when you're all starting off, well, are you the fantastic wizard that puts an end to the universe? No. Are you the fantastic cleric? Are you the fantastic wizard mentalist? Are you the fantastic gunner? No. We're all learning. I might be obscenely rich, but I'm starting with a 15 wealth, potentially just like everyone else, because I'm still learning how to use my wealth in this setting. I'm still learning how to manipulate my money so that I'm, I'm going to have money in a year. While I'm adventuring, I'm picking up ways of increasing my wealth. And on my downtime, I'm taking care of the things at home that I may have thought of doing while I was adventuring. Oh, I'm resting for the night. Oh, okay, I have this business idea or this economics idea that I can use when I get back. Well, when you're done at the end of the adventure, you go back home. Yeah. And in your downtime, okay, I'm, put, I'm implementing that option and using the feat that, you know, let's say I get financial wizard. Okay, fine. Well, in my off time, I'm doing my financial planning and my portfolio expands greatly. Yes. I mean, you can look at the modern day world and say, just because someone has a lot of money, if it's tied up in investments or it's held in trust, they may not be able to see a dime of it for 5, 10, 15 years. As you're leveling up, as you're making improvements to your wealth score, you can role play that as, I've accessed a trust fund or this old asset of mine finally came to term and now I can actually start accessing it. My CDs Um, and bonds have matured, yeah. 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 You could say, once an adventure, I can double my wealth score without any problem. Oh, no, that's too terrifying to me because I know where those numbers go. (laughs) (laughs) You say, okay, I, I can make a purchase that's double my current wealth score without it causing me a problem. 
with the idea that you can't then just take that item and turn around and sell it because then you are feeding back into the system. I always played it as part of the glory of wealth is the getting there and then having the great time while there. Walking in the door, being obscenely wealthy at the start of the game, well, yeah, but if you're, say you're an IDET, most of your money is locked away at the business back home, and it's as you're adventuring, you're either getting the stuff built at Hatsumi Base to make your life easier, incidentally everyone else's, or you're making sure that the contract gets through so suddenly instead of these little cheesy rifles that break all the time, suddenly you've got all the state-of-the-art weapons. Mastercraft weapons, yeah. Yeah, or everyone loves you because you finally got the uh, catering service changed. Another way of doing the obscenely wealthy character, I'm going back to Bill Gates. For a while, Bill Gates was one of the richest people on paper. His money was tied up in stocks. He had to sell his stocks, and in fact, he was so wealthy, he had to let the FEC know he's going to sell stocks. <laughs> yes. Wow. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I, I really feel that when you're playing wealthy, walking in the door, a lesser god, isn't as much fun as walking in the door, the very comfortable guy who develops into a greater god. Having that kind of power overnight is boring. It's fun for a one shot, but if you're going to do a campaign, grow. Burn. We're talking about Bureau 13 and Fringewood. We actually haven't touched on the other settings, like Hardware Hinterland. There, you're almost by definition are going to be a self-made millionaire in there. And I say millionaire because the prices are like 1930s. So a millionaire is actually a, is a billionaire in our current terms. Oh, really? You, you think Anson's uh, kid isn't like super rich? Oh, yeah, he's probably super rich. And Anson got in the way because he was able to... to get into the crystals. I'm talking someone who's working his way up from a scavenger to a millionaire. Or I, I actually think of, of a potential instant millionaire, D.B. Cooper. When he got off the aircraft parachute, the wind bloom left. And also he finds himself over the hardware hinterland, but he had $200,000. The standard procedure is to give you the equivalent in whoever's currency. And since the prices are 1930s prices... $200,000 is about $3 million in 1930s. Yeah. Buying power. Hardwired Hinterlands, I, I haven't actually played it. I'd like to. It sounds like that's exactly the kind of circumstance where the person with the rich persona, you know, you've got the right skills, you've got the right knowledges, you've got the right attitude. If you have a marketable skill that's applicable to the Hardwired Hinterlands, yeah. You are going to make money hand over fist. Pilot, yeah. mechanic, uh, maybe teacher. Hi, I'm a metallurgist. Oh, Who here God. knows how to work aluminum? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm a scavenger, and I just came on to a uh, restorky site of Fort Knox. Oh. Or, yeah. <laughs> or I came across one of these coffee shops that actually makes coffee, and there's one ton of coffee beans in this place. That also would translate lots of money in the hardware hinterland. And some very frenetic people for a while. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In Incursion, when I first ran my campaign, I added something that I re regret adding after I realized what, what I had added. One of the vignettes in the story implies that they actually had some plutonium. Oh, okay. So I gave them a, a warhead. And a warhead has a softball-sized ball of plutonium. It weighs about 50 pounds. And the prices for plutonium are like a million credits per ounce. Yeah. Scavenge the warhead and have a party. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically, I made them instant billionaires in, the, in terms of the economy with that warhead. And I didn't realize until after the fact. <laughs> There's a lot of game systems where the GM does have to be careful because the right person with the right, oh, knowledge skills or the right craft skills can turn what's supposed to be a mundane piece of equipment into a massive windfall for either themselves or the party. It, and then it's not just whether or not you're rich, but what opportunities you're going to take to become rich. The idea I knew is worth a king's ransom. 
If you feel like you don't want to keep it because it makes you a target and sell it to the first uh, government that will want to buy it from you, you can name your price. Well, obviously, they know where humans come from. Maybe they'll have to check the records, and it might take a couple of years for them to do it. But if you know the government responsible, hi, my price is a small amount of whatever runs for money around here. Plus, once you know where my homeworld is, send me home and don't dally. Because Ray Richard designed it, uh, you have a hard time telling the difference between humans and galactics. Because we all look alike. <sighs> oh, okay. You can actually tell them some basic information. And then, if I remember correctly, it's because there's the, the memory center is all mucked up. The captain's logbook is destroyed, and all the cubes got scrambled. So you have no idea which cube it is that takes you back home. A new logbook by popping the cube in the reader... Okay, this one heads here. Okay, flip to the next side. Boom, you're there. Okay, this one, and you got to rebuild. And there's like 72,000 different locations. There's like 14,000 cubes. And a couple cups of coffee, he'll do it in no time. <laughs> <laughs> and it takes time to travel. Yeah. Basically, you find the way home when the GM decides you find the way home. Yeah. Okay, well, what about, uh, I know John's secretly his favorite setting, FTL 2448. Yeah, unfortunately, I wrote the trade rules at least twice for it now. Uh, in the current version, I wrote the current trade rules, and I realized I still did not make them very well. You can still become insanely rich by trading fairly easily. And this is a problem I had with Traveler. I was able, in a period of a game year, be able to pay off uh, 20 years' worth of payments on my ship. <laughs> well, Traveler does have that basic weakness in it if yeah. the GM yeah. is willing to run that kind of game. Trade should really be handled totally different way, and trouble is there's no good model for trade and becoming wealthy because we're talking gamers, so they always will gain a system, and the system, while it has a chance of failure, it has a much better chance of success. It will tend to become wealthy. If there's a goal to the wealth beyond the zeros, yeah. if the sole purpose of the money is zeros, well, you'll find that players, after a while, aren't going to be terribly interested in accumulating wealth. Once the whole party has a DC-40 wealth in D20 Modern, are they really going to care about the next plus four wealth bonus that they might be able to get by doing X? No. Yeah, they're individually worth 10 million credits each. Are they really worried about making the next payment on the ship? Now, if, however, part of your trading thing is that you're looking for parts to build X thing, and either they're extremely expensive or... You have to use the barter system to get the stuff that you need to build it or to find it all. Then there's a purpose to that money. There's a purpose to being a trader. It's the journey, what got you to that state, or it's what are you doing with it. In the original playtest, the reason why we did trade was help pay for fuel. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to have a game system that has a mechanic for basic money. Because after all, when you hand wave away money completely, especially when money isn't that prevalent, a little bit of money would be nice. If you have a game system where money's too easy to get, then you kind of run into the issue of, well, why am I out here? And unless you have some clearly defined game mechanics or you have a clearly defined game universe where... Mm -hmm. The, you know, there's something else taking that place of money. And I'm not talking credits. I'm talking, you know, there's like some thing you're out there for. Because I like to say that in Fringeworthy, it's not about the money. If you're really liking what you're out there, you're an adrenaline junkie. It doesn't matter if you're a multimillionaire tomorrow or if tomorrow you can't make the payment on the next sandwich. You, you know, it's not being an adrenaline junkie, maybe altruistic. You're doing it literally. Or that. If you have this mm -hmm. other reason, then yeah, money isn't necessary at all. Mm -hmm. But yeah. if there isn't that other fuel for you, then a lot of gamers are going to go back to the old D&D &D standby money. If you don't have an alternate fuel instead of money, then you kind of do need a game system with money. Yeah. It's fun to have a, what are you going to do with it? Yeah, I mean, like in FTL, are you running... A merchant campaign where you, you the sole goal is to become wealthy, that may be more like solo play 
frankly, more than one person playing that kind of game I don't see happening. But if you're playing Serenity or Firefly-style game where, you know, you're not making money, <laughs> you know, you're making enough to pay your bills and keep the ship flying, that's a different kind of game where if you can make that windfall, it's extra special. Those game sessions where they had money, it was party time. They were eating apples. Ooh. Or they were actually able to, like, stay someplace for more than a day. Or buy that part they needed for the engine. <laughs> My natural want for gaming is to either be like the smart guy or mad scientist builder guy. When you're the rich guy, well, it makes being the other one of the other two so much easier. If there's someone else in the party who is one of those other guys and you're not, but you're the rich guy, you can make their lives so much easier and suddenly the party you know even if it's not the big kill em all weapon even if congratulations tomorrow you all have the plus one bonus on your gun or tomorrow you all have your magazines now will hold five extra rounds doesn't sound huge doesn't sound game unbalancing but if you spent 18 games crawling in mud that stuff is like manna from heaven gives everyone a sense of accomplishment Yay, we've done something. When you can do that for a room, that is extremely rewarding. That is bringing the awesome. You can do something minor and make it feel like an accomplishment for everyone. All right, why don't you summarize? Okay, first off, being ultra-rich is one possible shtick for the character, one possible special thing. How you do it should be something that can work into the game system. And whether or not it's what we would normally consider to be workable, it should boil down to, is it fun? And is it something you can play for the length of the time you want to play the character? How you're approaching it should be something that works for you, for the game master, for the characters. I mean, however you want this to fit in, make sure that it does. Because after all, it's a game. We can do this one of several ways, and it's important that we have fun with these rich characters that are doing it most of the times, not because of the zeros, but because of what that wealth can accomplish, and also the thrill of the hunt for more. If you want to check out something really cool, Need to tune in to the TriTac podcast. What's that you say? TriTac? What's a TriTac? TriTac is one of the oldest role-playing companies around. They make games like Fringeworth, FTL 2448, Hardwired Hinterland, Beach Bunny Bimbos with Blasters. Designed for D20 and Savage Worlds, these games will kick your dice into overdrive. Whether you want to combat the denizens of the underworld, travel the galaxy, get crazy with bimbos, or travel the multiverse and do it all, TriTac has you covered. Go to TriTacGamers.com to see what it's all about. That's T-R-I-T-A-C Gamers.com. And check out our weekly podcast at TriTacSystems.Podbean.com. Or simply enter keyword TriTac in iTunes. You're going to love it. Bruce Sheffer here for TriTac Games, and we are going to be having a huge presence at Gen Con this year. And I wanted to let you know something about it. I'm going to have each of the hosts tell about what games they'll be running at Gen Con and at what times, so that when Gen Con opens, you all have the best chance of getting the event registration that you want. Now, we're going to have up to 10 events this year. I'm running four. John is running two. Blix is also running two. And Richard Taholka, the designer of both Bureau 13, Fridgeworthy, and frankly, almost all the games that we have, with the exception of a Stellar Games product line, 
he is going to be running two games where it's pretty much you and he uh, talking about how he created the game and uh, what his ideas about the best play for the game. So it's going to be a play session, an actual play session, but there's going to be a great opportunity for you to get some one-on-one time with the original designer to see the vision that he had for the game and how it fits with perhaps your vision for the game. So starting off is my events. I'm going to be running first at Thursday, 1 p.m., a Fringeworthy episode called Burn the Witch. In this episode, the team goes through a portal and finds themselves on the seacoast where there is a French colony back in somewhere around the 17th century. They have found someone who has been washed up ashore off of a shipwreck, a young woman, and they're trying to determine whether or not she should be well disposed of in some way as a witch to keep her from polluting the colony and your job is going to probably be to try to do something about it try to stop it from happening or perhaps even find out the alternate explanations for why she might be causing this if in fact she isn't really a witch this is fringeworthy and magic can happen The second episode, uh, the second session I'm going to be running is Friday at 8 a.m. So you're going to have to get up early because believe me, I'm going to be getting up earlier. And that is called Murder at Chessex House, where at a house that is owned by a man who used to be a conductor on the Chessex line, the great railroad line that has been going on for over a century, he retired and died in this house that he built that appears to be literally made out of railroad ties. It was closed up and it's been vacant for quite some time because it is a bit of a white elephant. In the meantime, some vagrant, some person, homeless person has broken in and gotten inside and there were lights shining and the neighbors noticed something going on and the next day they found that the poor man had been cut to bits by something, chopped into, into various parts with huge gouges in the floor of the parquet floor as if some huge piece of machinery had literally sliced him to bits. Well, you want to make sure that there's nothing supernatural going on. If there is, make sure it stops because I think there is something supernatural going on because ever since then, there have been lights glowing on the property. This is going to be followed by Savage Saturday Night at 8 p.m. This is a Fringeworthy game. When you go and look in your schedule, it's important that you look for the Savage Saturday Night header on the role-playing games because all the games that are going to be taking place during Savage Saturday Night, which means that it's going to be running the Savage World system, is going to be taking place uh, in one basic location under the heading of Savage Saturday Night. And this is going to be called Savage Saturday Night, Fringeworthy, Meller Escape from Hatsumi Base. If you're familiar with Fringeworthy, you know that Hatsumi Base is the Antarctic base where everyone explores from in the beginning of the game. And in this episode, you're going to be playing the great nemesis of the Fringeworthy, the shape-shifting Meller. These Meller have gotten back to Hatsumi Base, and they're going to try to escape and then get out into the world so they can wreak their will. This has always been considered to be a doomsday scenario and something that has been highly recommended that GMs never do in their game system, in their campaigns. But, since this is Gen Con, we're going to do it. And you're going to be able to play these awesome characters wreaking their will and trying desperately to escape so that they might do what they have to do, which is destroy the world. All right. The last episode, the last session I'm running, is Bureau 13, The Pittsburgh Ripper. This is Sunday, another 8 a.m. So you can get this done if you're not the person who has to check out of the room before you do your final sweep through Gen Con dealer's room because they're going to be open till 5 in the dealer's room. So this is your last chance if you're heading out on Sunday to get a good game in. And this is going to be a good game. This scenario was originally released back with the original system back in 1992 as a matter of fact so some of you people probably weren't even born before when this scenario was published but this takes place in pittsburgh ergo the pittsburgh ripper another scenario involving vagrants unfortunately 
in Point Park, which is where the Ohio and Monongahela rivers meet to form the Ohio, they have a park in Pittsburgh. And in that park, apparently at night, sometimes homeless people will gather and sleep because they have no place else to go, especially in the summertime. And during that, some poor man was attacked and rended into pieces by some feral, possibly animal attack. Your job? Track down the culprit. Make sure it doesn't happen again, or if it happens again, try to come up with a reasonable excuse to the police. You need to cover this up, get rid of it, stop before it goes any further, and get out of town. So that's the sessions I'm running. And we also have Blix, who's going to tell us about his adventures, not only uh, regularly on the regular Gen Con schedule, but also Savage Saturday Night. What are you doing, Blix? I'm going to be running Deutschland über Alice. It's an adventure that it's in Germany. It's in 1945. Uh, Hitler won the war. And uh, you're going in to, to retrieve a small amount of plutonium that he's been able to make, you know, disable his capability to make any more bombs. Yeah. That's going to be uh, Friday night at 6 to 10. Uh, I don't have a location for that yet. They haven't assigned those. So, But this is a fringe-worthy yes. uh, game, right? Yes, it's going to be fringe-worthy. Uh, Savage Worlds. Saturday night for the Savage Worlds. Was it was it called the Savage Worlds? It's called Savage Saturday Night. Savage Saturday Night. That's what it is. I'm going to be doing something a little new. It, it's going to be for Hardwired Hinterlands. I think it's going to be the only Hardwired Hinterlands uh, adventure there out of all of us that anyone's doing. The other will probably be 6 to 10 as well. No, it's 8 o'clock. They're all at 8. Oh, so it'll be 8 to 12. Yes. That's also going to be using the Savage Worlds system. Because uh, as I understand it, Hardwired Hinterlands is basically sa- uh, systemless. It's system agnostic. Right, system agnostic, that's right. Okay, so I'm going to be using it with the Savage Worlds rules. It's going to be called Land of the Lost Lightning Crystals. All right, so lightning crystals have the ability to lower the relative mass of, a, of an object, so it makes it lighter. So it helps uh, planes fly on things like alcohol and such. They're ex- exceptionally valuable. So for this adventure, someone, Dirty Pierre, has stolen a bunch of these uh, lightning crystals, and he got away with it. But the last person who saw him, he stole him in a zeppelin. So they saw a zeppelin going down over the island, and they were unable to pursue it because the island's quite dangerous. So the party's going to be hired to go recover those crystals. And why is the island dangerous? Because it has dinosaurs on it. <laughs> So they'll have to go to the island and go to one of the observation stations and start out from there and trek through the dangerous woods amongst all the dinosaurs to get the crystals. Good chance they'll survive. It's a pretty good chance they'll survive. I mean, in Savage Worlds, it's a pretty forgiving system. Uh, that one should be a lot of fun. You know, you get, get your uh, Jurassic Park feel on. Well, that sounds great. This is all part of the Savage Saturday Night and a fringeworthy game and a hardwired hinterland now. So yep. there's just more and more stuff that's happening Savage Saturday night. So be sure to get your tickets as soon as they go available on the Jet and Con registration site. Now, hey, uh, Bruce, just real quick. I think we were talking about trying maybe. So keep an ear out for this because we, we can't say for sure if it's going to happen or if it's not. We're, we're working on it. But there is a possibility that we'll be doing a live podcast from the Savage Saturday night. Maybe. After after our games. Right. And because it's going to be pretty noisy in that room, but I know that there's it's at a hotel, so there's other rooms nearby that we could probably do them at. No guarantees on that, but that's something that we've got in the works that we're going to try and, uh, we're going to try and make happen. Because be, we're all going to be there. Um, maybe, and Trav is still a maybe, but, but the rest of us for sure. I'm pretty sure that Trav is going to be out uh, promoting us through other venues. Yeah, but we might rope him in for that. I mean, it's going to be late, so. Yeah, well, I'm, hopefully he'll show up. I'm sure he'll be interested to see what we're doing. And we'd love all of our fans to show up and say hi and how are you doing on our games because we like seeing you. And we can do a live Q&A if you show up for that. So that would be kind of neat. Cool. So but we'll talk about it more later. Right. We have here Richard Taholka, who's going to tell us about what he's running at Gen Con. Richard, what's up? Well, we are going to Gen Con this year. We've already put in, we got a message back from Gen Con LLC Saturday night, uh, late, that uh, said, Hi, we know who you are, and you're welcome back to Gen Con. We have half paid for our table, and the other half will be coming in in about a week and a half. So we're doing really good on that. So we are definitely going to do a 10 by 10 booth, I'm hoping somewhere almost dead center of the convention floor. 
we thought about the entrepreneurs section and decided that uh, that it was just kind of far and away. So we did a full booth. So it looks good. It looks very good for that. I'm going to be doing personally two events. We're also going to be releasing a minimum of three new major products at Gen Con. What products are you going to be releasing? At Gen Con, we're going to be releasing Portal 3, which is going to be a very large, when printed out, uh, notebook of portals and personal observations and that kind of thing. For the Fringeworthy game? Yep, for Fringeworthy. It'll be generic to any Fringeworthy version, so you can use it, or almost any interdimensional exploration. Looks good, a lot of data in it, and we're going to hopefully have that finished. I know that'll be finished. The second product that'll be finished, and this is one that's going to be a little iffier, but I think we can do it in time, is going to be Bureau 13 Brass and Steam, the Bureau 13 Steampunk book. We've got a lot of people that are excited about that. Trav is doing material for it. I've got a, a huge outline, actually, of hand-sketched pages, sections of the book and that kind of thing, sitting up on the wall. That's going to be a lot of pages. So this is done in your systemless version, right? Yep. Everything we're going to be doing, other than the books that uh, the Savage Worlds books and possibly any other system books, will be done generically so we can use them compatible to anything. And which I think is a very good move now. This is a concept that Mike Pondsmith and I discussed about 20 years ago. The fact that it's, it's never about the system. It's about the game, the details, and what you do with it. I rather like that concept. And so far, it's with the Bureau 13 books, it's been really good because they're cross-adaptable to old TriTac, to the D20 system and the Savage World system, which will be coming up, and whatever system is there in the future. And what's the other product? And the third product, I'm not sure where this came from. I had a a wonderful session about a year ago with Peter S. Beagle, who did The Last Unicorn. And we sat and we talked. And we discovered that we had a commonality, which was that at 5 o'clock or so, or after you've been writing for about 6 or 7 hours, that you suddenly stop and go back over with what you've written. And you say, did I write that? And... What the hell did I write that for? Yeah, he does it too. I do it. Odd things have come out into the books because of that. In Weird Zone, the old farmer and Pickles the robot weren't supposed to be in the book. We don't know where they came from, and they ended up running through the book. In this next book, almost the concept was there, and suddenly it appeared. We were about to re-release a generic version of Incursion, the humans lost across the galaxy. And then... Something hit me, and we said, well, why don't we do something a little different? Why don't we do a sequel where mankind makes it to the stars in the way they do it? The working title of the book now is Incursion 2, Canadians Across the Galactic Empire. We have this huge contingent of Canadians who I was showing off the cover to and the concept. They absolutely went crazy. They were going, this is going to be Canada's first space role-playing game. It's going to be generic. It's going to have a lot of material in it. That's It's dedicated towards the Canadians and the Canadian mindset. So far, it's coming out hysterically funny. It's actually a good story, which is a surprise. It's something that came together this fast. We're adding more and more material. And this is the story of the HCMS Chalk River a nuclear research submarine that the Canadians purchased, renamed and re-outfitted for uh, specialized exploration. And unfortunately, they run into something, and they end up as Earth's first starship. They end up on the other side of the galaxy, much the way the Ardana New did in Incursion. The story's great. The backgrounds, what happens to them in the beginning, you create your characters, and then you, you integrate in any way you can. It's a lot of fun. The Canadian contingent this weekend, Sunday, at Confusion, local convention up in Michigan, came down to the booth and brought the sailor's drink that's always given in the Canadian Navy. They brought a bottle of Newfoundland Screech, which we're going to write up in the book. This stuff is like, I think it's one part rum to 12 parts caustic soda. It's left in a barrel to leach the rest of the flavor out of the barrel for about six months, and then they bottle it. It smells like industrial solvent. 
it looks like something that would take rust off hubcaps and taste like butterscotch, which is really odd. A lot of people can't stand it, and I had just a tiny bit. I was allowed a little bit. It was fun. It was interesting, and we had the best laugh over this. But they're already sending me pages and pages and pages of personal notes from the Canadian Navy, the details, all sorts of stuff. I'm looking forward to this. This is probably going to be a very fast project that's finished. And the cover is beautiful. It's an, it's an alien world. You can see in, in the sky above the world what looks like a Russian submarine. It looks good. Other part of it, which is even better, is the master model maker and museum show person, Bill Wardrop, is going to be building a scale model of the sub, be sort of before and after. A lot of the exterior shots and alien shots of the subs sitting in the alien docking cradles, that kind of thing, are actually going to be photography, miniatures, and that kind of thing. That's actually looking kind of exciting to do. I've got a, a couple master modelers who went, we want to help you on this. So, yep, we're going to do it. That'll be out. Hopefully it's going to be about 96 pages. It'll be out at Gen Con. This particular product, any idea what you're going to sell it for? We don't know yet. I don't want to make any predictions. Our miniatures, we were talking about reproduction on the miniatures and actually adding Meller miniatures to the uh, collection, three different kinds of Meller, and discovered that we were charging prices from 20 years ago. I think the new miniatures are going to retail from 595 to 995. The Bureau 13 Brass and Steam will probably run 1995, like the other big books. Incursion probably 1495. I'm thinking right now it's a possibility. So we're trying to keep it low, give the gamers a real bang for their buck, and with something a lot of fun that isn't going to basically strip their you know finances. You know, a lot of companies have lost that. Is this also going to be on the CDs? We'll have CDs, you know, CD PDFs. You can print them out. Right now, we still aren't at the point of actually producing the major manuals again because of the, the cost involved, the shipping, and everything else. And the distribution is uh, actually still up in the air if you're not a major company. We could actually produce a book. Unfortunately, I can't guarantee that it's going to solve for the company. And we have to keep our budget requirements low on this. You know, we can do better for the gamers if we're selling PDFs right now. Okay. Let's see. The booth will be there. New displays we picked up. The tower will be selling buttons. We'll be selling... The games, uh, some other stuff. We'll have the vending machine of dice and miniatures on one corner. And then the racks with the RPGs. And then examples of how you bind them and what you do with them. So it looks good. I will be running two games there. Both of them are intro games. Not complete start-at-the-beginning intros, but basically you know what to do for role-playing. We're going to quickly gen your characters talk a little bit and then we're going to run into the scenarios the one scenario is called the pittsburgh factor and that's a little bit about time and space i, I don't want to spoil it and give this out to everybody as to what's going on with it this is a bureau 13 adventure right uh, this is a bureau 13 adventure yes mm-hmm. it's a good story it has a ton of handouts so the more the players get into the situation the more information starts hitting them so I, I think they're going to enjoy that. The second one is a Fringeworthy adventure, which has never been published before. It's going to be a group of Fringeworthy explorers chasing down a Meller that has found a Tremelleran vacuum suit, a protective suit, and is on the pathways now. It escapes from one world, and there's eight other worlds and possibilities of where this thing has gone. You need to track it down, find it, and kill it before it does anything else. That's actually a fun one. We're actually going to have some original art and paintings for that one, and basically a few miniatures and maps and a lot of other stuff. I'm looking forward to that one. I think we, we've run the first one, the Pittsburgh Factor, at a couple of conventions. Yeah, I ran in it. Yep, we had up to, oh my god, at uh, DragonCon, we had eight players, we had eight observers who played, and we had eight more people who just wanted to watch who ended up playing. So we were running 24 players in this game, and they enjoyed it so much at the end that we got a standing ovation. Hopefully the players will really like this when they, they played through it. Do you have any idea when you're going to be running these sessions? 
One will be Friday at about 1 or 2 o'clock. The games will go for three hours. And then another one Saturday. I'm not sure what order they're going to take them in, which one's going to go where. But I think the, the Fringeworthy is first and the Bureau is second on Saturday. But I, I'm still not entirely sure. So the Fringeworthy is going to be on Friday and the Bureau 13 is going to be on Saturday. Right. Could have gotten them in backwards. Okay. I think it might be the Fringeworthy is Friday and then the Bureau is on Saturday. So they're going to start at 1, so people should be looking in the event catalog at 1 o'clock for either Fringeworthy or Bureau 13. And same on Saturday. And we're going to expand out the online description of the games and the fact that you know you don't need experience. We will teach the game. We'll, we're actually going to probably use uh, TriTac uh, System 3, which is the third edition of TriTac for this, because it's fast and pretty easy to work with. It's not going to be a game system that's hard to learn. No, it's not going to be hard work. It's going to be mostly players and thinking and acting. So everyone who hasn't had a chance to play Bureau 13 or Fringeworthy should definitely see this as an entry level into getting into the game and just get a, give it a try. It gives you a very good feel for the games. and Like I said, we've, we've run these before, and the results were very good. And Richard, you don't do a whole lot of demoing conventions, so you won't get a chance very often to have Richard Taholka, the designer, actually run a game for you. So it's definitely something you don't want to miss. The main problem I have with going to conventions is the fact I work for a company that monopolizes as much possible of my time as, as possible, literally as possible. And you also have to run your table. I've got to run the table. I'm very good at selling. We're, we're going to have Travis and Bruce and John possibly Terry Williams, Kendrick Goods will be joining us to actually work at the table, and my wife, Melody Natcher. She's looking forward to it. So people should definitely stop by and say hi, if nothing else. Yep. In the infamous words of Greg Porter from BTRC, oh my God, you're still alive. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Richard. We'll get this out as quickly as we can, and we hope that everyone has a great time at Gen Con. Yep, I am really looking forward to it. A couple of vehicles heading down, the, getting everything set up on the displays. GenCon setup is Wednesday, all day Wednesday for us and most of the companies. They don't air condition the convention center on Tuesdays and uh, Wednesdays, and so it is going to be exciting. <laughs> I think we should bring a swimming pool for, uh, you know. To catch the sweat, huh? It's going to be hot. We know what it's going to be hot. It was, it was in 2010 when we actually... We're there for just a little bit with uh, Diana Stein, the artist. Oh, and something else on the miniatures line. It, it does look like we're going to be producing the Meller miniatures, the, the mini Mellers, the secondary Mellers, uh, the medium Mellers, and then the great Meller. We've got the miniatures. We've been sitting with them for years and really haven't had a way to do them. And uh, it looks like the uh, Dark Platypus is going to be assisting us on this and we're going to produce the new miniatures, new molds up here. Because we were working with Fortress figures. I'm not even sure if they're in business right now. Hopefully they are. We're going to probably do the new miniatures and repackaging, boxing them, and maybe something on the back, like a miniature sheet, uh, information sheet on each miniature. That includes the, the ever-popular hazmat crew, the men in black, the gray aliens, which we were the first ones ever to do gray aliens, the bureau agents, and then some of the other ones that are kind of fun. Well, we definitely ought to put the stats for them for the D20 system and the Savage Worlds, you know, just as something to go along with the miniatures. Yeah, we can e easily do that. We could actually do a one sheet, fold it up as part of the backpacking for the miniature. I'm not sure yet. It, it depends on the molds and everything else. The molds are expensive, and right now we're, we're looking at, uh, I think it's, John said it's called India Gogo, partially to get a little more financing to go, because this is going to be spectacular. This is going to be the big show for us for the decade. All right. Well, make sure so, you uh, give me that link so we can get that out to everybody as soon as you set that up. Yep. That's probably going to be within a couple of weeks. The Gen Con table costs are amazing. We used to, as a company going to Gen Con, pay an average of like $600, $700 for a 10 by 10 booth. And now that's as a minimum has doubled. We're not sure whether air comes with the booth or electricity or gravity or that kind of thing. Yeah, don't expect anything more than gravity and air. Well, hopefully there's going to be gravity and air. <laughs> and we'll, we'll all be staying there. It's going to be a good event. It, look, it looks very exciting. And, and of course, this is, this is 2012, where the Mayan calendar ends. 
we'll see if this is the last great game con or not. More than likely not. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Fisher. Anytime, Bruce. For letting me know, and that way I'll get this out to our friends over at All Games Considered, as well as our own feed. Yep. Well, we, we should be hopefully releasing the, the covers for the books, the three books, within two weeks. I'm waiting for Ben Rodriguez to finish the art for two of the books. Third one, pretty much we've got, we, we know what the cover is going to be. All right, well, we'll get that on our site. I'll put it on to the Facebook for All Games Considered and other things as well, as soon as you get those to me. We'll get those out and get as much pre-publicity as possible. And finally, we have this from John Ryer. Greetings. I am Alexander Borden, base commander of the UNIDA Extradimensional Exploration Base Antarctica. Today, IDET 2 will be embarking on a survey mission of the second platform of the Termelin Fringe Pass. According to the Journal of Captain Oates, only the junkyard portal was open, and none of the others. We wish to verify whether this status has changed. So, the United Nations Security Council has ordered UNIDA to send a survey team to the platform and verify Captain Oates' journal. We have made a personally copy of the pertinent pages from the journal available in your press packet. IDET 2 is to verify each portal and if they find any to be open, to enter and explore what is on the other side. They are to take due caution in their exploration and not reveal themselves to be from another world if they meet anyone on that world. I have the greatest confidence of IDET 2's abilities and good judgment to carry out this mission and achieve all its goals. I will now field your questions. Randall St. John's, the BBC. Am I to understand that the team finds an open portal? They are free to explore what's on the other side. Yes, they are. We do not have the luxury of time. Captain Oates' journal contains encounters with other travelers on the pathways. If there are individuals, then there is a chance of nations that are exploring the pathways. Nations that may not be friendly to us. So there is an imperative to explore this new frontier and find out as much as we can of what is out there. Quite. But doesn't that sound a bit paranoid? We could be putting these people into danger. Death even. Why do it? Have you ever wondered what is beyond that hill? Around the corner, there is could be danger, death even, but there's also the thrill of discovery, of finding out new things, new people, to further the expanse of our knowledge. If early man had waited till he had all the necessary data before proceeding, we would still be living in caves. Exploration is dangerous. One can get hurt, even die. But what you can learn, what new wonders you can behold is all worth the possibility of danger, is what makes us human. Are you a human, Mr. St. John's? Or are you a primitive ape, cowering in the dark, afraid of the light of discovery? Uh, uh, I don't know how to answer that, sir. Nah, you don't, do you? Next question. Come play the Savage Worlds edition of Fringeworthy in the game Victorian Victoria. It's for three to six players, no experience necessary with either Savage Worlds or Fringeworthy. You're part of IDIT 2, the second team of Fringeworthy Explorers, and you just found that a previously locked portal is now open, and inside is a steam-powered vehicle unlike anything you've seen before. There is no way it could have gotten into that place that you found it in, except through the Fringe Portal. Who brought it here, and where are they now? Find out Saturday at 1pm at Gen Con Indy 2012. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer 
saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Eric. It's all about having fun with friends. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun.